Hello and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Monroe, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guests about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is the actor Alastair Petrie. Alistair might be best recognised off the telly as Mr. Groff, the uptight, out-of-touch, exasperated and sexually repressed headmaster of Moordale Secondary School in the hilarious and excruciatingly embarrassing comedy Sex Education. But I recently enjoyed watching Alistair in the dark and chilling drama The Terror, playing the expedition Doctor on a doomed polar expedition. And me and the kids are absolutely obsessed with the Sherlock series, so we love seeing Alistair playing Major Sholto in the sign of three, but the original story was called the sign of the four. So yeah, I've got to ask him about that. There's kind of too much TV and film work to list and lots of theatre too, but you'll instantly recognise Alistair. Sterling Moss in Rush, that's a really good film to watch, or The Night Manager, for example. I actually first met Alistair in a club darling in the West End many years ago with his wife, the actor Lucy Scott. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome Alistair Petrie to This Is A Token. Great. I love the, the Sherlock title reference, sign of three, sign of four. That's very good because not many people mention Well, that. they changed all the... When they did the Sherlock series, they changed all the things. So running a business and being anxious. One of the things I do to sleep is to read Sherlock Holmes books. And I have done, but I've actually worn out probably five or six copies of Sherlock Holmes because I just read them so often. And I just like the process and I like the way it's written. Mm. And so I've watched all of Sherlock Holmes and we we love that um, that series that was on the telly. Well, I live very near Conan Doyle's former house. It's on the Surrey kind of Hampshire border. But um, attached to that, have you ever heard of uh, the cricket team that um, Conan Doyle was a part of? No. Okay, they were called the Alu Akbars. That was the name of their cricket team. And this cricket team included Jerome K. Jerome, Conan Doyle, J.M. Barry. I mean, there's a book actually you can get, but I've got it at home, which I will send to you. But they were appalling. And they they knew they were appalling. And they used to play on a cricket pitch, which was uh, just outside my house. Literally just outside my house. And I say used to play on a cricket pitch that was, because now it is a pine forest and you'd never know it was there. I don't know what happened originally, whether the village press council just gave up on this this plot of land, but it's now a, a pine forest and you never would have known. Which that, part uh, of the world is that in? Surrey. It's near Frencham. Lovely. So Conan Doyle's house, was. it's now a school for children with special needs, which is all rather wonderful. So, hmm. yeah, so um, there is a, there's a sort of a direct uh, geographical um, correlation between... Myself he was a bit child. of a, a spiritualist, wasn't he? And and also, I read that book, I forget what it's called, about the guy that he really got off the hook. So he he actually investigated some crimes and things. Oh, really, did he? That's okay. interesting. Um, yeah, super. So so um, when I met you, mm. we were, I think, we a, a previous podcast, I chatted to my mate Lloyd Hutchinson. So I think it was like a birthday party of his or something. At, yep. A kind of a while ago in West End, and it was really nice because I think it was me and Denise were with, yep. with you and your wife, That's and right. so we had good chats and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
you made us want to go on holiday to Kenya, but mm. we didn't because there was some kind of little uprising or something happened yeah. shortly after we met, so we yeah. never went. Mm. But you spent time in East Africa, didn't you? So you are born in the UK, yeah. but spent time in Middle East and East Africa. So Correct. somehow you got some sort of... Um, well, I spent my, some of my, well, a lot of my teenage years in Nigeria, so the other side of the continent, but where my father was working oh, in the Air Force. So your dad was an actual real pilot. He was an actual pilot in the area. Did he get medals? Well, no, because he... It's quite an interesting story. My father died last year. Um, oh, and it, Well, it, but part, of, part of the, you know, life. But what was interesting about him is that he got into the grammar school in Aberdeen. He was from a, a very working class family. And his father, um, they had three kids. And I think his father struggled with that role of being a dad. And so I think any time he got the opportunity to go away to work, he would. And he was mm. sort of an engineer. I mean, a hands-on engineer rather than a, you know, mm. flashy, we should do this. He was a worker. So he traveled quite a lot for work, to get work, to go to places where you could work. And one of the places was South Africa where he died. And I think my dad was probably eight or nine. So there wasn't any money after he died. And so my grandmother, who was had to be kind of quite sort of um, inventive and worked as she could while raising three kids that all were quite, quite close together in age. But he got into the grammar school in Aberdeen because he was bright and a mm. very, very talented rugby player. So that sort of smoothed his path. But he knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to fly aircraft. That was what he wanted to do. He specifically wanted to fly in the Air Force. He wanted to fly jets. That's what he wanted to do. And I found this out recently that the church did a whip round to get the money together for the train fare so that he could go from school aged, I guess he would have been 17, 18, to go down for the interview to become a pilot. And he didn't get into what is called, and I think it still is, the Air Force, the flight training school, RAF Cranwell. He had to go a slightly different route, but he still achieved the same goal. But he always says, I didn't get into Cranwell as a student, but he was good enough to go back as an instructor, which he was very proud of, inevitably. And so I think when I wanted to become an actor, he had no points of reference whatsoever. But he recognised, I think, an individual that knew exactly what they wanted to do without any frame of reference. So his career took him all over the place, but he never fired a shot in anger. Who wants to actually... Well, quite. Yeah, but that's what he was trained to do. Yeah. And I never asked him, really, if it was a source of regret, in a way, yeah. uh, that he never sort of saw combat. Quite a glamorous kind of guy, because I remember, certainly in the 70s, mm. a bit later on, if you had an advert for a cool thing, like a Rothman cigarette, it would be a pilot, mm. you know. And um, so flying and air travel, I mean, being a pilot must have been one of the most glamorous, like being a rescue driver, isn't it? Yes, I think so. But he was very, uh, his sort of working class Scottish nature never left him in that he hated any form of sort of ostentatious display. He once reprimanded me for wearing a baseball cap indoors, like wearing sunglasses, you know, walking in and wearing sunglasses and maybe keeping them on for two minutes longer than you possibly necessary. Um, he, so he, he hated all that. He was actually a very shy man, but part of his job was, of course, being engaged because you can only fly up to a certain age. And so he stopped doing the thing he loved because mm. of age. And that was mm. about 40 years old. You're still medically sort of tested every year to make sure that in the event of a conflict, we could throw you back in a plane. But yeah. of course, that never happened. He flew for 20 odd years. But you still think when you're 18, 19, it's like, oh, I'm going to fly for the rest. You know, it's being 40 is miles Yeah, away. it's like that is the rest of your life. But it's, it's like being told as an actor. It's like, yeah. well, you're 40, congratulations. 
reasons, you, you now go into theatre admin, which is a perfectly valid job, but it's not what you signed up to do. No. And so it's a weird life. And probably yeah. quite, like, it's quite like a nice job in theatre admin. Yeah, <laughs> a regular job does it pay. <laughs> I, I, always, I always notice, like, when, when I'm out with Lloyd, hmm. if he sees another actor, you know, there's such a great community. And I love the way that everyone's so friendly and hmm. they're always so... Hmm. But, but occasionally you sort of see someone sort of not catching his eye and shuffling past and, and you sort of think, oh God, I bet that guy just hasn't worked for years and doesn't want to meet Lloyd because he's doing the good thing, you know, so that there must be that thing. So one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is I had an opportunity to do some TV work mm. and I got sucked in mm. and I really wanted to do it. And then in the end, I went for a sort of whatever it was called, a sort of casting thing and I didn't get it. I was absolutely gutted. Mm. And Lloyd just said, yeah, that's kind of three times a week for me, mate, for my entire <laughs> life. You know, get used to it. It's like, but that doesn't happen in jewellery world. You don't get rejected all the time. But I mean, <laughs> it's brutal. I didn't coin this phrase. Someone else did. And it's 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 very simple. And it, it's But it's absolutely true. It is an industry built on rejection. Now, whether that makes us masochists or just plain mad, I don't know. But I mean, I've got a son. I've got three sons, one of whom has just quietly announced with a mild form of trepidation to tell his father that he wants to become an actor, which out of three sons, one out of three, I think is a pretty, pretty reasonable return because I know other people who've got children who's all of them are trying to do it. And uh, so it's, um, it is, it's an industry built on rejection and you find ways to, to deal with it. It never gets, it's not, I mean, who likes being told no? So what would worry me? If I was you, but I'm, I'm not saying that you're mm. suggesting things more than you don't worry about. <laughs> you know, so this is the conversation I have with Lloyd. Obviously you're a talented actor, but, mm. but, there are an awful lot of talented people. Totally. You have to have a lot of luck as well. And, and I always, so quite often when people say to me, how, you know, how come you've made it to where you are? You know, and I give talks and students mm. and they go, how do you get me out? I basically go, yeah, I'm, I, was, I'm, I was no more talented than any of you. And I could see half of you are like much more talented than me. Mm. I think I've just had lots of luck and a bit of perseverance. And I think actually luck is so, I don't know, I don't know if you look up in the dictionary um, what the precise agreed term for luck is i don't really know what luck is um i don't know how you pin it down i don't know i think we can all say we're lucky but i I don't know the criteria but i don't i don't know how it happens i guess for me Mm. my handwriting my signature the type of jewelry i make Mm. when i was a a young man and struggling to get going it wasn't very fashionable and i didn't make any money but it, it became popular at a point at which then I started earning some money from my jewellery. And I think if it hadn't have been popular, another couple of years would have done for me and I would have got a job somewhere else. Mm. And it's almost like the, the fashion, the vogue sort of changed and suited my signature. Now, I couldn't change my personality. And I think if you're an actor, I mean, you can see it certainly in music. Someone wants to be a musician. All of a sudden, it's all boy bands or it's all females with the guitar. You know, And if you happen to be yeah. in the the right sort of person and that's what I'd call luck is that is, is in acting it's so fickle I mean there are so many brilliant but quite sort of fey young men mm. now mm. and you think God, if you were a quite fey young man you'd have more luck than if you were a, a sort of bit of a beefcake in, mm. in acting in, as, maybe I'm wrong but you know and no I think I think a lot of it is uh, it's the one kind of life lesson I have wanted to instill in in my offspring is that uh and I think it was probably a sportsman or someone who coined that phrase, um, the harder, what is it, the harder I work, the luckier I become. And I think that's an, a real element yeah. of truth in that. 
And my mantra has always been, whatever it is you do, do it to the best of your ability because A, you'll be happier doing it and B, out of that opportunity will come. And I remember when I was waiting tables and selling jewellery, funnily enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, at, uh, at Tiffany's. Tiffany's? Wow. Yeah, not on Bond Street. It was a wow. kind of a funny racket, really. I'll tell you about it. But And cleaning toilets. And I mean, a timeless time mm. show. You name mm. it, I, I, I did it and done it. I thought, well... I can either sit and moan about it and be not very good at it, or I'll do it to the best of my ability. And again, because I'll sort of enjoy it. Mm. And I get enthused by things very much. So I genuinely am curious about things. And I like um, sort of the investigation of things. I I don't get sort of bitter and gruff about this industry, despite having done it for about 30 years. I'm always sort of curious about meeting, you know, young talents. Like I have no problem with being told what to do by a sort of 22-year-old wonder person. Mm. I think Mm. they're obviously bright and smart and engaged. I can bring something else to their table, which may or may not be experienced. I don't know. So I just do think that hard work is probably the the key factor in, in terms of luck. Yeah, I, I kind of struggle with it, particularly when you're when you're asked by someone who's starting out and say, "Well, how do I achieve what you've achieved?" And if someone said that to you, and you you know, of course, there's the hard work and stuff. But then, yeah, it's not a meritocracy you know, either. It's, it's, it's no, not. It's, it's, there's nothing tangible about it. And I'm sure we can list actors who, again, it's all about you know, it's, it's completely subjective anyway. You just go, "Well, I, okay, well done." I don't quite know how, but you've clearly got a thing that people enjoy watching. So, well done, congratulations. I totally agree with you about this thing about it's not. Karma, but you're going to get absolutely what you put in. As, I, I don't yeah, think that's exactly. something that my parents have. You, there's, there's no beating that. Mm. You'll get out of it what you put in. So yeah. put in your maximum and you'll get the most out of it. Yeah. And then that often leads on to new things. Yeah. And then I had a really interesting point, but I forgot what it is. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'll just eat my crust on the show. Yeah, so we'll come back. <laughs> that business page, we'll circle back. <laughs> do you have some bits of jewellery, watches, accessories to show me and to talk about? Do you know I do, actually? Good. I do. I'm eating the crust on No, eat away. When you have sort of greasy hands, I you shouldn't touch gold or silver, particularly silver. Oh, really? Because mm. the oil... Oh. We'll send it back in two seconds flat. Well, I'm now going to bring it up. I'm just going to wash my hands. Yeah, there you are. Professional stuff. Okay. You are wearing a blue check shirt and jeans. Yeah. And you, you almost look like if you were a woman, I would have thought you would you would have thoughtfully accessorized your whole look because it's really a happy. beautiful lapis lazuli cabochon, which it means a yeah. sort of rounded stone. It's probably one and a half centimeters long. It's a big stone set in a kind of what I what I call a hollow ring. So it's a rub mm-hmm. over setting in mm-hmm. a hollow ring. And I'm guessing that it's a nicely handmade silver setting, but it's just a really nice lapis lazuli, and that's a really interesting stone that mm. has come up and down in fashion over the years. Yeah, that actually, honestly, I don't know. But the re- the story behind this ring is that when I was at drama school, it was in, I think, our second year, uh, I was at Lambda, and they had a poetry competition. And the nature of this poetry competition was learn a poem and we'll have a poetry evening um, in front of an audience and I think external judges types or even maybe not maybe it was just faculty I can't remember and maybe a guest 
nice fancy guest judge ex alumni showbiz type don't know but anyway and it was voluntary so I thought yeah no that'd be good I'd like to do that so um, I sort of flummed my way through a large book of poems and I came across Lapis Lazuli by W.B. Yeats and I read it and it just immediately I just loved it and there was no sort of analysis of what it meant at the time at all I just loved the poem I thought that the language in it was charming I find that poem is quite mysterious, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what it's about. Well, I subsequently found out, because I didn't do too much deep thinking, I thought, I'm just going to say the poems it speaks to me, and I didn't go into, oh, this stanza means this and that, and the rhyme scheme and the lack of rhyme scheme and all of that. I just loved the way it rolled off the tongue, and it, it yeah. felt like I instinctively understood it, which can sometimes happen with the part that you read, you go, I know who this person is, and I know my instincts about this, so just let me do it, if someone lets you do it. And that was the same with the poem. And many, many years later, I actually thought, and it's always been in the back of my brain, um, I forgot most of it. What, what does it actually mean? Snippets of it, I understood. But yeah. what was the overarching theme of this poem? And my little happy research led me to find out the reason Yeats wrote this poem was because he was given a stone, a lapis stone, mm. in 1936 for his, I think, 70th birthday by his pal Harry Clifton who Harry Clifton is I haven't yet discovered but anyway and he was so intrigued by the colour and what this stone looked like it immediately spoke to him so he sat down on a July day and wrote this poem and it was sort of contextualised by the fact that it was 1936 so things were looking a bit ghastly Mm. politically in Europe and I guess beyond but specifically Europe and the poem is about the importance of art in a dark world and and the love and enjoyment of um, art and drama and how important it is, um, despite when you can be surrounded by tragedy. And that, I was like, blimey. And that made me realise, well, it made me think, God, was that my initial response to the poem? Was it so blooming instinctual that actually, you know, did I sort of subconsciously understand what this poem was about? I mean, it's got very specific theatrical references. It references King Lear and Hamlet and Ophelia and, and other things. But then it goes to China. I mean, fantastic. Nuts. And then I looked it up again recently and went a little bit further into it. And of course, you know, the way that the poem speaks now, given what, you know, the goodly world's been through for the last 18 months and beyond. It just had an enormous relevance, you know, the the importance of art in a very, very dark world. That's so relevant. It's really extraordinary. And so the ring, my wife and I had always wanted, if we could at all do it, when we were raising our three boys, to give them hopefully a practical view of certain parts of the world that they may take with them. And so take them on, not vast, but many adventures that may somehow inspire them to look beyond the confines of their own little world and probably nowadays the confines of a little social media bubble and all of those kind of things. And so we wanted, years ago, we said we want to take the boys to India, but when they're of an age where they could see it through youthful but independent eyes. When when they're young, Mm. you kind of do the amazing trip with them and you kind of sit down and say, what was your favourite thing? And they say, McDonald's. McDonald's we had in the airport. Yeah. Totally, you go, oh, well, you know what cured that with me? We went to one of the trips that we did. We did California, Hawaii, and uh, Montana. And I got a book, and the book was Travelling with Teenagers. Mm. And the first line of this book, I didn't need to read the rest of it, because the first line of this book summed it up. And the first line of the book was, children don't appreciate views. And so when we were driving down the Pacific Coast Highway overlooking, you know, from Big Sur and overlooking the glorious Pacific Ocean, 
I mean, truly awesome in, in the truest sense of the word, awesome, an epic landscape, the like of which they had never seen. And they're in the back, sort of staring at the, their feet or probably looking at a bloody iPad that we forgot to confiscate. Yeah. It didn't frustrate me because I, I did say, look at that. I mean, it was breathtaking. And they were like, oh, and then they looked back down. And I remember that line in the book. So I thought, okay, don't worry about kids not appreciating views. They'll get something else. And that, honestly, I didn't need to read the rest of the book. So we went to India, which is a podcast in its own because it was such a magical experience. But one of the things we went to was a jewellery maker in, yeah. I think it was Jaipur. Jaipur is where yeah. a lot of it is. So, yeah. And uh, we were having a little look around. And um, the Supreme sales team, of which they are Supreme, I happened to mention, do you have any lapis? And he went, yes. <laughs> the tray came out. Anyway, I chose one and um, my wife had this made for me for my birthday. And so it's got a very long, happy history. And so I look down upon it when I wear it. And I don't wear it all the time at all, but I would want to do today. I think a lot of lapis comes from, so I was traveling in Pakistan and on the border with um, Afghanistan. A lot of it comes from around there. Mm. But also I associated a bit with sort of maybe a bit Russian as well. Mm. So, so I'm not sure. We'll have to find out where it comes from. Well, it's a nice bit of lapis anyway. It's very and nice. And actually, clean and clear. It's, it's the fact of, yes, it's sort of long history. So so lapis mm. lazuli has been with me for a long, long time, both <laughs> poetically and practically. <laughs> I, love, really I love that poem thing. So I was sort of, you know, doing a bit of stalking of you before mm. this. And I love the classic kind of probably early 90s mm. sort of period costume drama you yeah. did a few of, looking yeah. great in. Mm. Obviously, your wife was doing the same. Did you, did you meet on set or did you meet at trauma school? Or how did no, you... not at all. I saw, um, I saw Lucy's photograph when I was 18 years old. I saw her photograph. It's a bit sort of, I don't know whether you know the story of Michael and, and Shakira Kane, which he saw, Shakira Kane, I think, was in an advert, like a coffee advert or something, and he saw her on the telly. Yeah, he was a young, yeah. impoverished actor. And just went, that person, mm. no question. And now they've been together for 120 years. So Lucy was at the Central School of Speech and Drama in her third year. And I did a very brief stint at university um, where I studied modern languages and drama. And the reason oh. I did that is because I was too frightened to tell my father that I wanted to be an actor. And so I sort of quietly capitulated and said, well, I'll do sort of a modern language. So I was all right at French. I didn't yeah. love it. But the drama bit of the course, which was University of London up in Hampstead, now defunct Hampstead-based um, college. The drama bit was at Central. Yeah. And so I thought, well, that's kind of like being at drama school, so I'll do that. Yeah. And so I went down and we did our classes and stuff, and all the third-year 10 by 8 students, as per tradition of all drama schools, because they're about to graduate and agents come in to see shows and all that kind of thing. And I saw a picture of Lucy on the wall, and uh, I just thought it was the most beautiful human being I'd ever seen in my life. And I was a feckless 18-year-old. I mean, useless. I mean, really useless. <laughs> but I, so I just knew the name and I remember the photograph. And I still have the photograph on my wall. Of course, Lucy sees it in my office and just goes, oh, please, I just take that time. Doesn't look at me at all. And I said, well, it is. You so judge your face. Because she was in sort of Pride and Prejudice sort of things, wasn't she? I, yeah. I recognised her. Yeah, Pride and Prejudice was huge. I mean, that was a sort of the thing yeah. that her off in 95. But what we didn't meet when I was 18, because she wasn't in the show that I was watching. Our paths didn't cross at all, but I'd never forgotten the name or the photograph. Mm. And then and having been booted out of university, I managed to get myself into Lambda. While at Lambda, talking to a very new and happy and still a long-time friend of mine, I mentioned this name. And he went, oh, I know Lucy Scott. I was like, Christ, do you? Can I meet her? And he went, no. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, because she's lovely and you're an idiot. <laughs> and so he, I mean, smartest man in the room. And he was so wise not to. Not that I would have had a remote chance as an 18-year-old with this highly sophisticated young woman, but um, it, it, was, it, was, it was a very good idea. So some years later, 
I was 25 years old and he said, oh, I'm having a go-karting evening uh, just for a laugh. Do you want to come? I went, yeah, great. Sounds good. He said, it's like 30 quid, all in. Oh, by the way, Lucy Scott's coming. So it was about, it was seven years later. It's a long time brooding. Yeah, long time brooding. And I was so terrified that I didn't say a word to her at all all evening. In fact, so much so people came up to me and said, are you, are you, are you all right? You're really quiet. Normally you can't shut up. I said, yeah, no, fine, fine, fine. Because I thought the first thing that comes out of my mouth to this to this to this brilliant woman might determine the rest of my life for good or bad. So I didn't say a word. And then wow. afterwards, a few of us went for a drink at this old bar that used to be along from the BBC called Albertini's, Albert Square, named after. But oh, I was I, thinking, it was, is it the Albertines? Is it? No, it's not. And so we're sitting in this bar, yeah. and the first thing that came mm. out of my mouth to the beautiful Lucy Scott was, "Do you want to come and see my boat?" Which was just the crassest thing to say. I happened to live very cheaply on a uh, on a boat in London, very cheaply, and she, being lovely, just went, "I'd love to." Anyway, a couple of nights later, or a couple of days later, she uh, phoned and said, "Oh, I'm just cycling past your boat. Can I pop on?" And I went, "Oh, I'm in. Um, actually, I'm at a bar, <laughs> boozing in Notting Hill on a Friday, unemployed actor Friday lunchtime." Do you think she had she done a, had she gone past your boat on purpose? No, I don't think so. She just cycles oh, yeah. everywhere. She hasn't been on the tube in yeah. sort of twenty five years, so she just cycles everywhere and she mm-hmm. darts around and all of that. And so I said, uh, well, actually, I'm in Notting Hill, but why don't you come here? And she went, great. And I was with a very, very handsome, charming friend of mine, an actor called Stephen Moyer, who is, uh, and he's so handsome and charming. I just looked, put down the phone, yeah. and I looked at Steve and said, please not, please not, please go away. Yeah, said, yeah, of course. <laughs> and so Steve stayed for the dutiful five minutes and went, oh, look at the time I've got to go to the laundrette and disappeared. And that was that. So I finally met Lisa right. Scott and subsequently married. Right. Yeah, very, very happy. And so she bought me later. this ring to circle back, <laughs> as the corporate people say. And that's the ring. Um, it's a great ring. Do you wear it all the time? No, I don't. I I don't wear it all the time. I wear it out. And I, you know, sometimes I just put it on so just, for a, just for a day. And sometimes I do. I do. Ah, okay, yeah. Cool. So my wedding so, ring. That's, I, I saw that down the shop. So yeah, that's the yeah. it's the Russian. It wedding took it off easily because I don't wear it at night. I take it off. Yeah. Well, yeah. This is my actually my third wedding ring. I haven't been married three times. It's just the first two I lost. It's a problem. I don't know. If it's, it's part of your job because actors and sports people have to take their jewelry off all the time and leave it in a locker or and, and so a lot of actors lose their jewelry and also a lot of sports yeah well i was listening to to colleagues to olivia's yeah. and she said yeah she's very good at she keeps it either on her personage yeah so um, yeah it's like on a, on a chair yeah but i'm quite trusting i'm sort of well known for leaving sort of wallets in hotel rooms and um in trailers and things because i just think well just human nature shouldn't really make that but of course and actually to be fair it hasn't really happened that much but uh my first wedding ring was slightly too big and fell off okay. somewhere, don't know where. Second one, don't know what happened. I can't, honestly can't remember. There's a sort of a lack of, not a lack of sentimentality about it. It feels that, so this this is a, a sort of a Russian wedding ring, um, which is the three different goals, I think. 
And it's the sort of the fact of wearing it rather than, so I, I look at this ring and I don't look at it and think, oh, this was the ring my wife chose on Benetton and off our wedding day. I just go, I'm wearing it as a symbol of something and that gives it its meaning. And I forget that it's sort of rose, white and yellow gold. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't Well, resonate. obviously the, 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 the lapis ring has got more it, sort of... It's a, just a, new, the lapis is newer, but it has a much... Yeah, so yeah, the, yes, the wedding ring on the <laughs> other hand has a bit like... Eh, a bit. Well, it's quite nice because there's three, so you could... Yeah. I'm thinking, oh, I you like know, your boys, you know, maybe possibly. Oh, good. I've right. never thought of that. That's very good. Like a third ring, what three ring? rings. Yeah. So, yeah. so I don't know. That's um, good. Because actually it's really difficult to melt down someone's actual gold and remake it into something. So quite a lot of people have that. Why is it hard to do? Because when you do the casting process, so if mm. you're going to cast something, it's an expensive process and you put lots of pieces together in a can and you cast a hundred pieces at the same time. Okay. And that makes it affordable. And so all the gold goes into a melting pot. So you're not necessarily going to get that one little bit in that ring. What we want to do is to be able to start casting one piece at a time, which will be a bit more expensive. So I saw a company advertising, I think it was for signet rings, you yeah. know, that very smart people wear yeah. with sort of family crests on. And the advert was basically said, if you've got an old piece of gold, love, who has, but some people obviously do, we can melt that down and make a signet ring for you. Yeah, I guess maybe some people can, but I'm, I'm always suspicious because, you know, when you do a melt, you normally do quite a big melt. And, okay. and when you do a cast, it's quite a big cast. But is there, so, is there wastage then? No. So the gold that we buy is now 100% recycled. So we're having a big sort of ethical and environmental thing. The problem with that is... There was this lovely old story that in that ring, there's, mm. you have a molecule of Queen Cleopatra's wedding ring in that because gold's never been thrown away. It's just been recycled and recycled oh. and, and, and distributed. But you've also probably got some stolen gold and some unethically oh, mined gold. Yeah. You know, but, so by recycling, you're recycling the good gold and the bad gold. So how would you find, you um, never, I mean, how would you know? How would anybody? You don't, you don't know. You don't know. I mean, you know, every piece of gold that's ever been stolen has been recycled because mm. it, it just gets melted down and puts into the thing. So, so recycled gold, you don't really know where it comes from, but you know it's recycled. As opposed to you can buy ethically mined gold where people are paid well and it's all um, certified. But the problem with that is there isn't enough to go around. So there's not enough gold. They can't produce enough gold for the worldwide market. And then also, what do you do with the recycled gold? I mean, you don't have to throw away mm. recycled gold. So mm. I think it's quite complex anyway. Do you think you'll get there? Well, we're using recycled and we and we can offer what's called fair-minded gold as well. So it's all it's all getting better. But mm. it's, it's all very complex. The trouble with trying to you never really get 100% resolve things because if you take one approach, it throws up some problems. Like, so if you use ethically mined gold, mm. that throws up problems of the fact that it's still mined and uses loads of energy and mm. it's shipped halfway across the world. Mm. Whereas recycled is just recycled. Mm. So, so I don't know, it's complex. Mm. I think the good thing is we open with people i get a little bit worried when people say that we're going to use your ring for this piece because i want to see the process because how do you know it's your gold and how do you know that they're yeah, not, true you know, it's a very good yeah very good point because i looked at that and thought oh i like that idea well, no, no, i mean yeah. you know oh i found a lump of gold under my bed let's melt it down and do something with it so how much would I have to melt down to make that Roughly, so it would come in bits and pieces. So it would be oh, I you see. Know, it would be a chain and a, and a thing. And a, and a, and a, oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, and a few fillings or something. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever you get. It's a good point, to, actually. But, but, if you've um, got old Uncle Mad Uncle Dave, who's yeah, all his teeth of gold, you could do quite well. 
Okay, do you know what? I'm going to photograph the Russian wedding ring and, and that. Yeah, um, watch by me. Thank you. Just going back to Russian wedding rings, I think they're infinitely playable with. And the nice thing about them is that you, you have to sort of drop them to yeah. work out how it goes on. Mm. I've always been a bit intrigued with them. They're a bloody nightmare to make. Are they? Yeah, because each band has to be bigger than your ring size. Mm. Because when they go together, they don't, yes. you know, it's a bit bigger. So you have to kind of work all that out. And then you make the bloody thing and the person tries it on and it's the wrong size. And you can't then stretch it or shrink it. You have to take the whole thing apart and chop yeah, a little section out, add a bit in, whatever. And um, invariably, I make them slightly the wrong size. And it's, and it's annoying. But good fun. I used to make lots of these. It was hard, but I quite like the, um, I mean, I suppose it's interesting because also being an actor, I kind of, when I talk to Lloyd, I say... Um, Man, isn't it boring, like, doing the same performance over and over again? Do you do theatre still? Uh, last play I did was in 2014, Shakespeare in Love, in London's Glittering West End. That was the okay, last play. So, so you have to do it over and over again. Yeah. And that really fascinates me. I guess if you're filming, you rehearse, and then and then you get the good... Yeah, it's a very... I've, I've thought about it quite a lot of the last sort of few years. Jonathan Miller, actually, relatively recently deceased, but sort of doctor, director, writer critic, comedian, you know, that Jonathan Miller, he describes when the audience watch a play, Tuesday evening at eight o'clock, whatever, he sort of said, and I bastardised the quote, he said, they're sort of watching the dying embers of a shooting star, which I thought was quite an interesting analogy because, and in fact, Anthony Hopkins talked about it because he hasn't done a play for, you know, donkey's years, and I think the last one he did was, could have even been Anthony Cleopatra National Theatre, whatever it was anyway. He said the thing he really struggled with was the repetition, and he moved more so into obviously film and so forth because I think that it's the notion of sort of capturing this instinctive lightning in a bottle and then you move on and every day is different and all the rest of it and I've thought about it a lot really I have no desire to race my way through you know the canon of all the Shakespearean parts I mean it's too late now because obviously but uh, I don't need to do that kind of investigation um mm really, to sort of think, I, I want to sort of tackle those big parts. At the moment, at least, I don't, you know, I don't feel I've got a Henry V at me around the corner. It seems bloody hard work. Sometimes you do two shows a day. Yeah, the hard work doesn't scare me, but I think I think the repetition is curious. And, I mean, there's so many, obviously, so many upsides to doing, to doing theatre. But I think now, for me, it's sort of the right part, the right play, the right director, the right sort of venue. And you think that's quite a hard thing to sort of piece together because I've been when the kids were young. I very much liked being at home. I, I didn't think, want to I miss was, out on a lot of plans. Yeah, it's, it's like if you're doing lots of plays, it's it's long and late, and you miss bedtime and you miss all. Yeah, and I, I just didn't yeah. want that to be to be sort of part of my life really. And I did a stint at the National for about nearly two years, sort of rehearsing in the day and performing in the evening, and um, I bought a scooter so I could get home just to bath the kids even for half an hour because I was just felt I was missing out on an awful lot and I didn't really want to do that and then on another occasion I was doing a, a really fantastic play up in in Sheffield which I loved doing but when it was sort of February the 11th or Tuesday morning at a you know 10 o'clock in the morning I was having a cup of tea there was an element to me going what am I doing here yeah you know what this yeah, is totally. not, what am I what am I servicing what am I you know, figuring out apart from working and earning all that good stuff, but so so I sort of it, it sort of ebbs and flows. But then something kind of crosses your path, and like something like Shakespeare in Love. I read it and went, having not been on stage again for that for about six years. I thought, God, this would be such fun to do, and so well, fun. Did to they watch. make a film of it? Is that the one? 
Yeah, so they, the film the film was uh, film was first. Leonardo, oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, Joe Fiennes and Gwyneth Paltrow. But just remember, um, some the kind of he wanted a rope, please. He wanted a the yeah, Shakespeare had a gun. Um, and then <laughs> a few years, well, one. some years later, um, Tom Stoppard and Lee Hall actually sort of adapted it for the stage. It's an inherently theatrical yeah. piece, and it was a massive hit. And uh, it was it was it was it was fun to do. It was six months, which was long, and it was very yeah. very. Challenging, but, you, yeah. but I guess with film work, like a big Hollywood production, mm. like kind of Star Wars and Hellboy mm. sort of stuff, mm. is that over in America? And do do you have to engage in all that madness? No, or? there's most of it is done in Europe. Actually, I mean, all the Marvel yeah. films seem to be shot here. Star Wars, all the Star Wars stuff, I think, was shot here with a couple of stints abroad. To, you know, for the overtly external stuff, like there was yeah. a two weeks in Mauritius. To shoot lots of sort of, you know, I'll be all right with that. <laughs> um, but generally, yeah, the studios are ram jam packed. I think yeah. it's you know happy tax breaks that the government offer and all the rest of it. Um, we've had very little, comparatively little, at least is now shot in in Los Angeles. It feels like that the business is is in in Los Angeles, and so the lawyers and the agents and the managers are still based in Los Angeles. But if you're an actor living in LA, the chances are you're not working because you're probably either in if you're American based in Vancouver or Toronto or Atlanta. That's where you'll be filming, or in the UK. Yeah, I think I heard on the news that the UK now have more set area than Hollywood or something. Yeah, I think know, that's, so. I would, that would make sense. And I know they're looking to build more. They're building more stuff up. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, just for out of my own personal interest, mm. um, in sex education, mm. so the character you play mm. is just brilliant. Do you worry that you might get a bit sort of um, typecast into a sort of slightly, you know, repressed, mm. stiff, you know, because what I loved about your performance was the comedy. And so I, I just thought it was hilarious. I thought, I thought it was a really good comedy. We used to laugh our heads off. Me and the girls, I've got, I've got three girls. Mm. And it's pretty... Uncomfortable watch with three it is. Uh, I, teenage girls. People, but... people, yeah, people ask me about the show. Would would do you? You know, friends of us said, would you would you watch it with with the kids? And when I say the kids, I say sort of you know mid teens up with. Yeah, I'm, I was like, absolutely it's required view. You must watch yeah. it with the kids. And some people have just gone. We watched first five minutes. Well, we can't. And I went. Ah, oh, it's such a shame. They will watch it, and you'll watch it, and then hopefully that will bring you together. But I think it should be required viewing. I do. Because of what all the sort of thematically what what it's what I it addresses. Wish, I wish I had had it when I was a young, you know, oh, completely. young man. And also now, like what really worries me is with I think particularly with boys is you know pornography is everywhere, mm. and the kind of pornography that there is isn't healthy stuff. No, and so, so our show shows it with a real warmth and humour, sort yeah. of as it is really. I mean, some of it's heightened, but but generally. not your character. You're no, bless his heart. <laughs> He's, I mean, to be an earlier point though about sort of the, the great thing is that with a successful series, I mean, we've done three. The third one comes out next month. Brilliant! Oh well, look forward yeah, to that. September seventeenth. Great. So with a long running series, unlike something like film or a one six parter, they've got the time to explore and characters grow and morph as human beings do over a period of time. And so the third run that that comes out, they wanted to explore why this man is repressed and a bully and all the rest of it. And so the character grows with, and then also once they come to understand the individual playing the character and get to know you, they start to write for you. They start to yeah. go, that's quite interesting. You bring this to this, which we weren't really expecting because 
and this isn't the case with sex education, but oftentimes you can get given a character, which is you look at it and go, yeah, that's major. We just say, listen, it's this, it's completely in your wheelhouse. You look at it and go, I can do that signing on my head. Yeah. And then if you decide to do it, your job then is to say, well, how can I make this much more interesting to lift this person off the page? And that gets quite interesting because you think, well, this is still a human being. What you want me to demonstrate is a sort of a repressed, uptight individual who's probably, I don't know, a politician or something. But then your job is to say, well, I could do that and just run down that line. And sometimes you have to because there's no leeway out the side. There's nothing particularly you can get your teeth into. But, you know, it's work and that's all good. But other times you look at it and go, oh, there's something interesting going on here. And then you yeah. can have a chat with the writer or the director and say, what if? Not to change anything particularly massive in terms of the writing, but I think we could do it in, in this way. Yeah. To bring out the humanity of this person, to slightly explain and investigate why they're like the way they are rather than the, yeah. just do the way that they are. So I get the feeling... With that, there's a huge amount of warmth and a love of the human condition on that series. And everyone, pretty much everyone, you can, even if you hate them, you can work out what's going on or you can have some sympathy behind what's yeah, going on. Yeah, and I think they love flipping things um, on, on their heads. So I think this year, the third year run will confound some expectations, both personally in terms of my lovely character and others as well, because yeah. that's human. You know, we're neither I'm, good nor bad. I'm kind of slightly in love with the place as well, the location and the cars, because you mm. you can't quite place what time it's filmed. I mean, mm. obviously it's modern, but but and yet they're mm. sort of pulling up in these lovely old Mercedes mm. estates that mm. I would really love. Mm. And everything's nice colours, and it sort of it feels like it's sort of slightly you know could be in America somewhere, but it's not. It's in the UK, and it's, mm. it's quite hard to get mm. get the grips on, which I quite like. Mm. It exists in its own sort of happy bubble, really. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the show, I mean, the time setting is all the kids have mobile phones. Yeah, as you say, the cars are basically sort of late eighties um, sort of vehicles. Clothes um, are slightly sort of eighties. Clothes have that. It's a not. It's a sort of a warm nod to a sort of a quiet love letter to sort of the films of the eighties, like the yeah. John Hughes kind of things that we grew up on, really watching. Yeah. And, and that, so when when I was a teenager, and maybe you too, your your sort of cinematic and and story references in terms of films, and the eighties was was a highly successful decade in terms of filmmaking big entertainment there was also a strong market playing to the young crowd and obviously yeah. there was a commercial interest but the sort of the brat pack and all of those kind of things they really spoke to you know a boy growing up in a small yeah. village in wherever totally and it's it's lovely having kids because you can you can say have you seen you know, yeah. this john cusack film or you Com- know have exactly you seen, precisely you know, and you can introduce them to things which is just a joy when they, sometimes i'd introduce them to things and then you watch them back and think oh my god this is crap like when did i like this i know it's sometimes like, you need to leave them alone and you rewatch them and go i'm so sorry and i've done that quite a few times with the kids and they've just gone damn what sorry what is this sorry. and the pace is often I, I was i was disappointed with the sting when i which i tried to watch that with the kids the pace was just so slow oh that's like, interesting it's like oh god this no, really you know, you sort of film someone walking and they actually film it for 10 minutes. Like, come on, let's, you know, the, oh, the kids, are, you can tell because the kids will get their phones out and then and then they're sort of triple screening and you lost them. And so, oh, I didn't know that about the sting. Yeah, it's That's quite, sort of the one in my back pocket that I think one day I put them in front of the sting because I've seen it so many times and adored it. Well, I still love it. But quite often things happen that you get uh, homophobia or racism or something that makes really uncomfortable and they go god this is awful yeah. and I didn't realise that, that, that the film had those horrible things yeah. but you know it's good it's lovely to share things I'm sorry we've digressed I digress as usual two rings have you got anything else uh, yes I'm wearing a watch the watch which is a lovely watch I, I just bought this um, Nike watch okay. because, because I had a 
pacemaker. And so it sort of follows my heart and it's got a brilliant thing. It tells you if, if my heart rate goes through, it gives me an alarm. So what does it do? And, it, um, it goes too quickly or? If it goes too slow. Right. And I was chopping logs at the weekend and one of them was a real bugger. So I gave it like five massive great claps. And then I sort of did a, did a on my last one. And my, all the alarms went off on my phone and it, oh. said, and it said calling emergency. And I think it was just like reacting to me log chopping. Oh, I don't know if it's a good thing, this watch, but it's, yours is a beautiful watch. Well, so, um, which is different. Yeah, I sort of developed, a, I've always had a quiet, quiet love of watches, really. And I certainly wouldn't classify myself as a so-called collector by any stretch of imagination, but I have the old one or two. And I, I adore the craftsmanship, but this mm. one is an Amiga. And I, I never buy them brand new. I always kind of have a little route around. So this is, it's from 1955. It's got a little tiny, tiny red star on it. Yeah. Which I think was given to, and I may get this wrong, but I think it was given to Amiga. There was a test done in Teddington um, about the most accurate timepieces. And mm. I think Amiga came out basically top. All Amigas don't have a little red star, but there was a sort of an addition made Bizarrely, I think for the Brazilian market. Yeah, go figure. Who knows? Who yeah. knows? I bought it sort of sight unseen from a from a, a small little um, secondhand watch auction house, and um, for not considerable sums at all. But uh, and it's it, gold, right? and it's it's gold. Um, it's, it hasn't got the original strap, and it's very light and rather delicate. And I think with watches, it's strange. And I've got a couple of chunkier ones and I look down, I've got very, very, very thin, small wrists. So, you know, a typical sort of property developer's massive, would just looks ridiculous on me. And there's a certain kind of delicacy to it. And I... Uh, I think it looks like a James Bond watch. It's very I sweet would love and that. simple. This is just something you buy for yourself. Yeah, um, I, buy for, I guess I quietly buy for myself. And then ultimately, you know, I'll... I'll Pass them on to my kids. Uh, do you keep them when after you bought one? So have you got a few at home? Yes, or, or... I, I keep. Yes, I, I yeah. keep. I keep them, um, and they're in a little oh, box. And uh, in fact, one of them I bought, which actually I gave to my son, and I actually gave. I, I just think there's something because I'm not a massive accessory wearer. Um, I, I I've got a wedding ring, and I typically on a daily basis will wear a wedding ring. And in fact, I don't wear a watch every day at all. I sort of was liberated from wearing a watch many, many years ago. Because we've um, all got iPhones now. So well, we've got, got iPhones and I just sort of, I didn't really want to be encumbered by time. Mm -hmm. I hate being late for anything and I know I was today. Yeah, with a, obviously with a fancy iPhone, you don't need to have a watch at all. But um, I, th I think I just get a sense of it gives me something. It's like, I don't know whether it's like some, for some people wearing a lovely piece of clothing that they just feel so that makes them happy. I don't know. I look down at a watch sometimes. I can sit there at a table and I'll just look at my wrist and I just go... Uh, just look. Well, it's a beautiful piece. It's lovely. Um, have you opened, had opened the back up? I wonder who he's got. Because going back to Sherlock Holmes, he always he always tells you all about the person. Because I think if that back were popped, it would be, have a beautifully engraved... Yeah, uh, maybe. ...workings and, the, and it would have the, the little gemstones in for the... You know, for the on on the little wheels and stuff. Oh, interesting. And it it, have it, I think the guy who, who like, sort of re re loved it, who who um, sort of brought it back and buffed it and polished it, looked after it. I, I got it and uh, I looked at it, and there was something I can't remember what it was. I think I, in my ignorance, I'm not rem not remote expert in watches, but I looked at the bottom of it and it didn't say Swiss made on it, and I thought, oh gosh. Um, so I got back in touch with the guy who I bought it from, and he was mortified that I should think that. <laughs> And he said, no, no. And he gave me this amazing report on this watch. Um, and it is actually, it's a genuine amigo. Yeah. But it was because it wasn't, it just doesn't have it for, I don't think this this um, this make and model did. But it's um, it's just, it's been lovingly brought back to life. And yeah, 
I just, Beautiful. Yeah, really nice. And I don't, I'm not bothered that it's not the original strap at all. It doesn't bother me. No, it's a lovely watch. I'd wear a watch like that. It's not, it's like you say, it's not a great big no, it's not high. I develop flats. Look at my still massive. Still think you should be James Bond with it. I think um, it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very yeah. So I wear it from time to time, and I've got a couple of others which um, I put on depending on mood, really. Brilliant. Um, thank you very much for giving up your time and for coming and being a guest on my. Thank podcast. you for having me. I'm in illustrious company. Well, um, it's been super. A great chat. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Over and out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you'd like to see some of the pieces we've been talking about, please check out our website and follow the links to the podcast page. You'll also find information on how to share your own stories, give a bit of feedback, or have a look at all the jewellery-related things I've been up to recently. We've also got some great jewellery-making tutorials on our YouTube channel. There's lots to see. Just go to www.alexmonroe.com.